Chapter 19 of The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes G. Byrne. Chapter 19 The Nature of Wind. The ocean of air in which we live is never at rest. Stagnation of our atmosphere is a thing unknown. Streams of air particles flow hither and thither, forming winds from the north and east, winds from the west and south, winds from every intervening point. Some are variable hour by hour. Some are changeless for months. Some are hundreds of miles in extent. Some may be measured by yards. There are great rivers of air, as well as tiny brooks of air, in the air-ocean, just as there are vast streams, besides little currents, in the water-ocean. Our next step is to think about the various movements of air, commonly called wind, those movements which altogether make up the worldwide circulation of the atmosphere. In some parts of the south and east of England, one may almost any day note the act of wind in turning the sails of a windmill. A pyramid-shaped tower has a large light structure facing to one side, formed of four huge spreading arms or sails, each some thirty or forty feet in length. Small crossbars partly fill up the skeleton shapes of these sails, and more or less of a canvas covering overspreads the crossbars. The sails are set at such an angle or slope that when the wind blows against them, they move round under its pressure, and thus work the grinding mill within. The action of the wind upon a windmill sail is much the same as upon the sail of a boat, a kind of slanting push sending it onward. Wind is nothing more nor less than moving air, but why should air move? Why should not the whole ocean of air remain at rest? We can picture to ourselves a great ocean of air in perpetual sublime repose, a world without winds, an atmosphere without circulation. Such a world with such a belt of air might not impossibly exist under certain conditions, but it would have to be a very different world from ours, a reposeful, not to say stagnant world, not spinning upon its axis day and night. It would have to be a world without varieties of heat and cold, of climate and weather. The moment one part of the atmosphere is warmer than another part, a disturbing element comes in, and the air begins to stir. Wind commonly springs from what is called difference of pressure. If in one place the air is warm and light, in another cold and heavy, the heavier air must always flow towards the lighter air, to keep up the balance of the atmosphere. Just as water always moves to preserve a level surface, so air always moves to preserve an even balance. Moreover, one current of air always causes other currents. That is a fact worth remembering. Everything that happens in nature, as well as in our lives, is always caused by other things going before, and always helps to cause other things coming after. No one thing in nature or in life stands alone, 
uncaused and uncausing. A current springs from different causes, but once set going it is certain to cause other currents. So even if we had an ocean of stagnant air to start with, it could not remain stagnant so long as a single disturbing element was there to upset its balance. Each slight disturbance would draw countless other disturbances in its train. Moving bodies in the air ocean are one sort of disturbance, and a very frequent source. We are not commonly conscious of this. Not a hand can move, not a sparrow can fly, without causing air pressure and consequent little air breezes. But the fact does not become apparent to us, unless the moving body is large, the compression of air tolerably great, and the wind resulting somewhat strong. We all know from experience what a wind is caused by the rush of an express train through a station when we are standing on the platform. Dust and sticks are carried along by the whirl of moving air. The same thing is seen on a much greater scale with an avalanche. Avalanches are of different kinds. Sometimes in summer, on the higher mountains, they consist of solid blocks of ice, dashing down steep slopes. In spring, they are more usually huge masses of soft, coherent snow, gliding downward with frightful rapidity, and overwhelming whole villages in the valleys below. Another kind, quite as dangerous, is the drift avalanche of winter. It consists of loose, dry, powdery snow, first set going perhaps by a strong wind. In the descent it gathers volume and speed, leaping from precipice to precipice, till the tremendous compression of air caused by its downward rush sets in motion a far more violent gale than that which began its own career. The mere wind from such an avalanche has not only lifted a strong man bodily from a ledge and borne him some distance, but has leveled trees and shattered whole houses with its hurricane blast. A mighty snowmass will often break loose from some frowning snow ridge above, and will dash downward, leaping from ridge to ridge of a great precipice. At the first concussion, the whole mass is broken into fragments, and soon only a cloud of white dust is seen, to flash like lightning from point to point, roar following roar, till the last leap is taken. Woe betide any human being, so unfortunate as to stand in the path of such an avalanche, or within reach of its rushing wind. But to come back to a very everyday matter, what is it that causes an ordinary draught in a room or public building? The draughts in St. Paul's Cathedral are pretty well known to Londoners. If no disturbing elements existed, the mass of air within our great cathedral might remain calm and moveless, but this is a state of things seldom, if ever possible, certainly never possible, when a crowd of human beings is gathered under the dome. The heat given out by their bodies, and the hot air pouring from their lungs, warms the atmosphere in and near the center. Then the warmed air rises, and streams of cold air pour centerwards from the side aisles, to supply the place of that which passes upwards. Thus a draught is created, and old ladies draw their shawls tightly round them, 
and old gentlemen cast savage looks at the vergers. But neither old ladies nor old gentlemen blame themselves as being in part the physical cause. It often happens that on the seacoast, especially in hot countries, land and sea breezes regularly alternate. All day long a fresh breeze from the sea will blow in upon the land. In the evenings that will stop, and after a pause a land breeze will for hours blow steadily out to sea. In the morning another pause is followed again by the sea breeze. The direct cause of these breezes is the rapid heating and cooling of the ground. Land grows warm much faster than water, and also loses its warmth much faster. Water heats slowly, and once heated it cools slowly. All day the ground becomes warmer and warmer under the burning sun, and helps to heat the layers of air above. The cooler and heavier sea air has to flow in upon the warm and light land air. After sundown the reverse happens. The ground cools fast, helping to cool the air above, while the sea keeps warm. The air over the land, becoming the coldest and heaviest, has to flow towards the more warm and light air over the water. Some explain this by saying that the cold air flows towards the warm air, because the latter, being light, has a tendency to rise, and to leave a space which must be filled. Another explanation is as follows. The warm air is enlarged by heat, and expands or swells upward, rising like a blister on the outer surface of the air ocean. The upper layers of air, being piled too high, have to slide away to a lower level over the colder air. Then the added weight and pressure over this colder region forces the air below to flow towards the region of warm and light air. It is, in fact, a readjustment of the balance. All around the earth, near the equator, are hot countries, lands when the sun beats fiercely down, warming soil, sea, and atmosphere. This causes on a large scale what has just been described on a small scale. The air, being peculiarly laden with moisture in those regions, is peculiarly susceptible to the heat of the sun. Vast masses of air, already warm, are more and more heated by the sun's rays and by the burning earth below, till they are far lighter and larger than air elsewhere. Then the cooler, heavier, smaller air comes pouring in from north and south to restore the balance of the atmosphere. I use the words larger and smaller with purpose, for literally the air of lower levels does expand or grow bigger with heat, and does shrink or grow smaller with cold. A mass of heated air, weighing one pound, is as truly larger than a mass of cold air weighing one pound, as one pound of heated iron is bigger than one pound of cold iron. The air in the tropics near the equator grows hot, expands, gets large and light. This means that the mass of the atmosphere thereabouts occupies more space than if cold, its particles being more widely separated. The result, if we could see it, is doubtless an actual swelling upward of the outer surface of the air ocean, the rising of a huge blister or air wave pushed outward by the enlarging of the air below. Now, the air ocean, like the water ocean, 
flows hither and thither in a perpetual struggle to keep itself even. Like the water ocean, it might surge out at its upper surface. Footnote. The word surface is of course used with a reservation. The atmosphere probably thins away so gradually that no man, if able to examine for himself, would be able to say where it ceased. But since the air ocean does not extend through space, it must stop somewhere. End of footnote. In great waves. But those waves are sure to fall back and flatten themselves out. The superfluous air, piling itself above, has to flow away in mighty currents towards the north and south. As these streams pour off, they cause extra weight and pressure where they go, and other currents pour in below, just as we saw was the case in St. Paul's Cathedral. We may be quite sure of one thing in the matter of air circulation. Whatever quantity of air flows towards one particular place, the same quantity of air must flow away from that place. Also, whatever quantity of air flows away from one particular place, the same quantity of air must flow towards that place. No part of earth can be left with less air or more air than any other part. So a perpetual struggle to make things equal is carried on over the whole world, air rushing hither and thither in streams to restore the balance, which, as soon as it is restored, is directly upset anew. All round the earth, to the north of the equator, except where disturbed by other influences, lies a broad belt of winds, always blowing towards the equator from the northeast, known as the trade winds. The belt reaches from near the equator to about 30 degrees north latitude, and the streams of air continue day and night, night and day, with more or less intensity, throughout the year. Exactly the same kind of trade wind belt is found also to the south of the equator, only, as these winds too blow towards the equator, they come from the southeast. The northern belt is known as the zone of the northeast trades, and the southern belt as the zone of the southeast trades. In bygone years the trades were a great perplexity to sailors, and often a serious difficulty. It was all very well so long as a ship wanted to sail in the direction whither the trade blew. The mariner might lash his helm and go to sleep if he chose, leaving the lookout to a girl or a child, for a long run through the open sea. He could be absolutely secure of a good fresh breeze, always from the same point, never ceasing and never growing too strong. But if we wished to sail in the teeth of the trade, that was another matter. Wishing for a change of wind was useless work, for the wind never did change. Now that men understand the extent and limits of the trades, knowing where they are constant, where they change with the season, and where land influences check or draw them aside, the sailor can make use of or avoid the trades as he will. Moreover, the widespread use of steam makes the direction of winds a less vitally important matter than of old, in a large proportion of cases. End of chapter 19